Welcome to episode number 30 of Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you start and grow a business, find a career you love, and make a bigger impact in your life. I'm Justin Gordon, your host and an MBA student in the class of 2020 at the USC Marshall School of Business. I've had my hand in entrepreneurship and business since 2012 when I launched Just Go Fitness and now with Just Go Grind. In this episode, we have Joe Teglia, who owned and operated a major Southeast Wisconsin asphalt and concrete site construction services and asphalt material provider for over 30 years. He has tons of experience in the construction business, and he recently launched Site Device, which provides consulting services to clients with basically with their site management and property management types of things. He has done a ton, and he's been responsible for, worked on projects, I should say, for over $300 million worth of infrastructure, private sector and public sector. He has a ton of experience and he helped grow Black Diamond Group to a $1.25 million in revenue. We go through his whole entrepreneurial journey, the ups and downs, the seasonality he had to deal with, hiring, firing, so many different things about being an entrepreneur, specifically in this industry of construction. As always, you can support the show at justgogrind.com slash podcasts. And over in iTunes, Apple Podcasts, please, please leave a rating review. I would very much so appreciate that. Without further ado, here is Joe Taglia from Site Advice. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you, Justin. <laughs> glad, glad to have you on. This is going to be a lot of fun. And where I want to start with is Black Diamond. So you were there for 34 years. I'm curious, like in the beginning, what were you doing? What was your involvement? Like, what was your role? If you can remember back then, what, hey, what the role was, Joe. My memory is just fine. Only a few years you. back. <laughs> so back in 1981, the name of the company was Paving Mix and Construction Company Incorporated, okay. which was started by my father and his brother-in-law in 1959. So throughout my grade school, high school, and college career, yep. that was my summer job. Um, you know, when Every I was summer. a teenager, I was running an asphalt plant. I yeah. was running equipment on crews. So it was always in my blood and always, I mean, it was the summer job. And it right. was a great summer job. I made way more than any of my, you know, <laughs> my, <laughs> my really friends, friends and buddies. Yeah. Um, so in uh, 1980, I had graduated college with a degree in mathematics and secondary education. And I taught high school geometry for one semester and realized that I never wanted to do that ever again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, Goodness. Um, I was living in Winona, Minnesota, working at night in a produce warehouse, um, loading trucks with tomatoes and potatoes and sure. whatever other produce and uh, had gone back for a visit home and kind of got talked into very much talked into right in fact maybe even guilted into coming into the family business so that's how I started in 1981 okay and then you go, go ahead yeah and so uh, you know at that point in the existence of our company roles were very ill-defined my sister had come into the business a year before that, um, and we also had a brother in the business who his kind of undefined role was more operational. He was out running the crews and doing that kind of thing. So I fell into a sales role, and um, at that time, we were a very small company, about maybe 
a dozen employees, if that, including the four Teglias, actually yep. five Teglias, including <laughs> my mom, <laughs> which she was there too. And um, we were doing a fair amount of residential work, a little bit of commercial, a fair amount of public sector work, although very small stuff, um, parking lots, that kind of thing. And we were not doing very much with the building community, the general contractor community, doing right. site paving for new buildings. So we kind of decided that would be my focus. Okay. And so that's what I did. I started going out and meeting the general contractors and uh, pricing projects to them, basically hard bidding, it would yeah. be called. You get the plans, you review them, right. you do a material and quantity takeoff, and you give the general contractors a hard number. And if you had the lowest price or they wanted you to use you for another reason, you got the job. Yeah. And, and that's what I did. So where were you learning from Like at that point? Was you, you would ask your dad, oh, what do I do, dad? Or like, how is this, like, what'd you do? Um, not a lot of training. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I thought. That's why I'm curious. Here's Joe out there. Oh, go sell some things. Like, yeah. Um, okay. You know, I mean, what? obviously I had been around it my whole life, so I kind of knew what... The business, at least. The business yeah. and what it was about. And... You know, learned how to do, I mean, I, I had a math background, so I yep. understood drawings made to scale and getting quantities right. of area and through that calculating quantities of stone and hot mix and how many hours is going to take. And we didn't have Excel spreadsheets, so we basically <laughs> had a piece of graph paper. We're saying, okay, a grading crew is going to be out there for this many hours and we think this is about it, how much they cost us. It was very, very unsophisticated. <laughs> So that was my entree into the business. Yeah. And through the 80s, um, that's pretty much what my concentration was, was the general contractor marketplace. And I kind of moved into that and did the business-to-business -business sales. Um, you know, at that time, our company management structure consisted of myself doing that kind of private sector bidding, general contractors and business to business. Right. My sister, Deb, who was bidding all the public sector work, okay. as well as kind of running the company, but the late 80s, she had been named the president of the company. And our brother, who was running the operational ends of the business. Um, so that was kind of the split. Okay. And then dad, who would go away all winter and then come back once in a while in the summer <laughs> and cause all kinds of trouble. Of course. Loved them. But, but what are you doing? What's going on? It's like, you know, you're not here except once in a while, go away. Yeah. So um, we were kind of, again, very ill-defined, very unsophisticated, plugging along. Yeah. And I guess early on, so you said so your dad started the company, what did you say, with his, with who else? His brother-in-law. With his brother-in-law. Yeah. Okay, so they started the company. And then roughly how many years was that? Like they were running it before you joined? Well, sure. So 1959 is when they started oh, the company. Okay. Gotcha. So 21, 22 years before, you before I showed up. I okay. showed up in 1981. And at that point, many years earlier, my dad had bought out his brother-in-law. I couldn't even tell you what year that was. Okay. So at that point, my mom and dad were running the business. My mom did the books. My dad handled everything else until all of a sudden... His three of his four children were in the business with him. Yeah. Goodness. It's like, oh, I need some more employees and they're coming along. You guys are growing up. It's like, you're going to, do you want to come to the business? Or like, did he, did he, did he recruit you or was it like, because I know you say you did teaching first. You're going to go that route. That was the, that was the plan at least. Then was he like just actively recruiting you or was it just like, that's there. I should just do it. Like, 
so how did that go? So that's, you know a, I mean? that's a great question, and I'll, re- I'll never forget this. So, yeah. um, so I was in Winona, fully enjoying my 22-year-old life, <laughs> working at a produce warehouse at night, riding my bike around during the day, doing what other things that 22-year-olds would be doing that nobody wants to talk about now, um, or at least maybe I don't. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, my brother came to visit me. Well, this is weird, you know. He, we didn't really have all that great of a relationship. He was eight years older than I was, and so he's coming to visit me. I'm like, okay. So he took me out to lunch and basically laid this huge guilt trip on me <laughs> about how you needed to come back to Milwaukee and the family needs you in the business and quite the pressure. Yeah. And I succumbed to that pressure. Probably partly because it included buying me a truck and a salary far beyond what I was making at the produce warehouse. It's tempting. I'm sure that had something <laughs> to do with it. Yeah. Um, and so that's that. That was my recruiting. Yeah. And you had the so you had that those early role that early role with the company. Yeah. Um, and then how did that evolve over time as you got years of experience and as the business grew? Like how did that change for you? So in the late '80s, um, my mom and dad were pretty much out of day-to-day operations. They okay. still had a substantial ownership interest in the business, but rarely were they there. Right. Spending six months in Florida and this five or six months they were in Milwaukee, they, he would rarely be actively involved. Yeah. So my siblings and I were running the business, and honestly, oftentimes when there were decisions, my sister and I aligned, and yeah. my brother did not. Interesting. And as a result of that, there became this uh, imbalance of power and authority, a lot of tension between the three of us in the late 80s. Um, and finally, in late 1989 or early 90, I couldn't remember, yep. uh, Deb and I basically went to him and said, either you're gone or we're gone. And... Um, Ended up, he left. Um, we bought his shares of the business yep. and then made a decision at that time that once that was completed, we were going to buy our parents out as well. So in 1990, we basically looked at each other and said, okay, we own the company. How are we, What are we going to do? How are yeah. we going to run it? And we had grown over the 80s. Um, you know, Back in the early 80s, we were probably doing a couple million dollars in revenue and by the time 1990 came along, we were doing four million, maybe four and a half million dollars in revenue. So it had grown. Yep. Still a very unsophisticated business, um, as many small businesses are. Of course, yeah. And especially at that time, um, little to no technology, certainly. Um, so we decided, okay, we're going to run this business. How are we going to manage it? What's going to be our makeup? And so we sat down and said, what, what are the two most important things that we should be in control of as the owners? One was the financial end of the business, the accounting, the banking, the, you know, that kind of stuff. And then the operational aspects of the, build, of the business, building the jobs. We figured right. those were the two important things. So Deb was comfortable being the president of the company and handling the financial and um, that end of the business, and okay, I guess I'll become the operations guy. <laughs> so at that point, she was president, I was vice president of operations, and that's the way we split our duties. That's that's how the decision was made. What are the two most important things? Okay, let's handle both of those, and the rest of it 
we'll figure out how to hire. Yeah, and through that, so I'm curious as to, so you obviously made those decisions and you had to figure that out. Was this just like a, oh, let's meet on a Saturday and talk about it? Was this a matter of days or weeks? So, you know, it was just like, do you remember it what It didn't that take us very long okay. to make decisions. Yeah. We usually, I mean, I think both of us had a pretty good handle on what the challenges were and... Again, because it's not, there's no stockholders, there's yep. no board of directors, there were no investors. It was just her and I. Hey, right. what do you want to do? What do you want to do? Exactly. And you know what? Neither of us had really any business experience other than that. Yeah. My degree was in math and education, her degree was in uh, anthropology. What the hell did we know about running a business? Sure. So it was just kind of seat of the pants, intuitive thinking. Yeah. So. That's the way we moved forward. And, um, you know, over the course of the 90s, um, our business grew quite a bit. What do you think led to that? How how did that happen? Um, Part of it was just a a desire to grow, to do more. It was interesting to us. Part of it was we had found ourselves in a business where we had an asphalt production facility. So we owned this pretty expensive piece of equipment okay. that it had to have a certain volume through it in order to be economical. To make it worthwhile, yeah. And our construction company wasn't doing enough volume to make sense. And um, in the late Back to the late 80s, we got somehow talked into foolishly spending and taking on a considerable amount of debt to put this facility up. And so here we were, the new owners, sole owners of this business, and we had this huge debt, this huge facility, and the experts who were helping us saying, unless you do more volume, you're just going to dig yourself into a hole and go out of business. So we were kind of pushed, if you will, Mm -hmm. to increase our volume to service the debt of that production facility. Right. So that's what we did. We started growing. And one of the first things we did is we hired a salesperson, somebody from the outside, you know, and so that was very different. We didn't know how to compensate salespeople. We didn't even know how to hire a salesperson. What do you look for in a salesperson? Yeah. So at the time, I had a good friend who was running a printing company and he, he was great sales manager. So he came in and kind of, the three of us talked about the pros and cons of hiring a salesperson. What do we want? We learned about, you know, uh, compensation through sales, right? Commission, sales, commission, yep. commission, compensation. And so we hired one guy and a few years later we hired another and they started doing more and more work in the private sector. And we just kind of honestly, intuitively, over a 10-year period, grew our business. Was there, so obviously knowing you had to grow because of the commitment you had, like you knew like that was the only option. Like you have to grow yeah. to make that make sense. And so did you just kind of map that out? I'm always I'm always interested in process because, you know, processes you, you can repeat. Like, did you map that out? Did you, was it like, okay, obviously we know to grow, we need to hire people. Like that's just what it is. Was that the focus of like, we need people, that's going to help us get the sales? There was no plan. Yeah. <laughs> there was no just plan. Was, you. It was all intuitive. Yeah. I mean, you know, looking back at it, it was so ridiculously unsophisticated. It's, so you have to one, do it though, right? it's, a, it's a wonder it happened. Right. Um, but, you know, as we as we hired salespeople, now we've got this commissioned salesperson. And we yeah. can't tell that person to stop selling because right. <laughs> right. that's the way he, in this case, 
fed his family, and right. then there were two of them. Well, we can't tell him to stop. Mm-hmm. Holy shit, we've got a lot of a lot of work. Yeah, and how are we going to service this? So we would buy more equipment, and I'd go looking for more employees. And we talked to our current people. Hey, you know anybody? Where can we hire people? You know, and it just kind of happened. Yeah, and everything we did, we did intuitively. As crazy as that seems, yeah, in it the doesn't early seem crazy 90s, at all. Actually. It was just. You know, kind of, I'd say chasing our tail, but maybe not quite because we were, we, we knew what we had to do and we were just through hard work, yeah. many, many hours, probably a fair amount of mistakes, yeah. we would just keep moving forward. Well, you say intuitively, and it, make, it makes sense because if you have a goal that it's pretty clear, like we have this equipment here, right? it's always top of mind. So you're always kind of, you know, I don't want to get too like woo-woo, but it's, because it's on your mind, you're trying to think of that constantly of like okay we need to grow so oh you talk to someone it seems like oh they might help us grow through xyz ways and that just happens so it, it makes it's something to be said for in a business having that main goal whatever whether it's written down whether it's intentional whatever but you know that's the main goal and then your actions they they adjust accordingly that actually reminds me of um i was interviewing eric huberman he's the ceo founder of uh, hawk media and he mentioned like i was talking about his growth because they're, they're like the fastest growing digital agency in the u.s and he was saying, like, we knew we wanted to grow exponentially, to grow you know, tremendously. So the things we put in place were not like, here's a 20% growth target. It was, if we want to double or triple, what actions do we do? And they adjusted accordingly. So, like, you guys knew you wanted to grow. So everything you did was focused on growth, it seems like. And it was. So, you know, we, we'd always find ourselves in a situation, for instance, oh, my gosh, we got one salesperson. Well, there's a lot of opportunities that we're missing. Well, let's hire another salesperson. And then, oh my goodness, our guys are working 80 hours a week. Well, we should put more, we should buy more equipment and hire some more people. And at the time, you know, at some time, point in the 90s, um, as we grew and realized in early 1990, we're doing, you know, like I said earlier, about $4 million. By the end of 1990, by, 19, by 2000, we were doing about $14 million. Oh, wow. So we had grown quite That's a bit. a lot of growth, yeah. So during that period of time, not only did we have to keep hiring more sales staff and buying more equipment and hiring more worker bees, we also had to manage all this construction. And for quite a bit of that period, I was the one and only project manager. So not only was I managing the crews and managing the production at our our asphalt plant, managing our equipment, but I was also building all the projects. Salesperson would sell it. Once the contract was in place, it'd get turned over to me to build. Well, I couldn't build anymore. <laughs> I, I was already, you know, everybody would always look at me and wonder how I could manage what I was managing. So, you know, sitting down in fall, what's next? Well, if we don't hire somebody else to help Joe build, Joe's going to die. Yeah, <laughs> right, so right. He's not going to make gonna it. I'm going to fall over of exhaustion. <laughs> and so, boom, we hired another project manager. And, you know, and then it just kept going from there. And I want to go back to the project manager part of it. So like, what, is, what did your day-to-day look like? Obviously, it would be different because there's different projects and different aspects of a project. But take me through, like, as a project manager back then, you know, you're in the 90s where you're growing rapidly. Like, what does that look like for you in terms of, like, what you did each day or each week or each month? Like, I'm curious about that side of things. I don't, I don't, I don't know, like, that much about project management, so I'm curious sure. what you were doing. So, in the early 90s when I was the one and only, I mean, I was handling all our operations. So, that included... A lot of logistics okay we had construction crews where were they going to be 
was the, was the job ready for them to do the next step on you know what, what mostly what we did is we installed aggregate base we installed the stone yep. and then we put the asphalt paving down that's the work we did in the 90s it's pretty much it yeah we did some excavation some removal stone base asphalt paving um and we had five construction crews at that time two paving crews three uh three grading crews and um I would have to make sure the projects were ready for them. So the the contractor in front of us, perhaps a dirt contractor, sewer contractor, whatever, did they get their work ready and finished? It, yeah. So I had to be out there assessing that and making sure it was ready for our guys to go to. So once it was ready, I had to get that into the schedule, um, get the right people, the right equipment. Um, we had to have dump trucks bringing material, bringing stone in, dirt out, asphalt in had to arrange for those trucks. So typically my day, I would start probably in the office, typically five o'clock in the morning. I would meet with every single crew leader as they were coming in to get their orders for the day, if you will, explain the project to them, and then they would leave. I would get some paperwork done and I'd usually be leaving the office about seven, 7.30. And then I used to joke, drive around in circles all day long. <laughs> checking on different things. Checking on different jobs. Not only jobs that were ongoing, you know, yep. that we were working on that day. Right. But also jobs that maybe we were moving to the next day or the next week or the next month. Analyzing where they were at. Making my own estimate on when they were going to be ready for us. Communicating with either a general contractor or a developer or a, a business owner. Um, about, okay, when are you going to be ready for me? What do we need for you to be ready for me? And then at the end of the day, coming back into the office, well, put in there also visiting our asphalt plant to make yep. sure things were running smoothly there um, and let them know what the plan was for the week. Um, and then at the end of the day, coming back to the office to prepare the, the schedule, yep. the the logistics, which yep. crews were going to be where, um, calling our uh, trucker suppliers, because we did not have our own dump trucks, so we would hire other people to truck for us, yep. calling them, telling them how many trucks they needed the next day, where they needed to be, what time, what material, and then ending my day typically about 7, 8 o'clock in the office to go home. Okay. Quite the day. And so, yeah, usually about, you know, 12 to 14 hours a day. Yeah. Because, I mean, you have to manage all of it, so you kind of have to have your hands on. And that's obviously why you hired another project manager. So at that point, so hired another project manager, and that person, his responsibility was to manage some jobs. So less jobs that I needed to go to. Right, every day. Potentially less communication because if it was a project he was managing, he would make the communication with the construction crew and certainly the client. But I was at that point always still in charge of the schedule. Yeah. So they're in the morning, they're at night, making all the calls to the truckers. Yeah. So, you know, so that whole project management thing is all about logistics. It's right. about, is it ready for us, you know? Is our work going well? That communication with people and other contractors and clients, um, organization and logistics. Yeah, and how did you stay organized? How did you keep track of everything? Make sure you're not missing things. Like at that time, what were you doing? <laughs> um, some things not so well. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, we were being creative. Uh, not a lot of technology. 
No, least, no iPhones yet. No iPhones, no laptops, no iPads, yeah. you know. Um, we had a pager and we yep. had two-way radios. Okay. Um, yep. I can remember at some point I was one of those people early on that had a phone in my truck. Mm. And it was this huge power pack back in the in the cargo area of the SUV I drove. Yep. And this big, huge thing between the seats that the phone would snap into place. <laughs> and, you know, I remember yep. that Deb would call me like, oh, my God, we got the bill. And your phone bill is like $4,000. And... It's just this crazy yeah. stuff that went on in the 90s. So everything was paper. Yeah. You know, we'd have an envelope with the plan in there and the information about the job and the number and the quantities and the thicknesses and everything. All, all the information would just be in a big paper envelope when you right. kind of just handed it to the foreman and yeah. said, This is this is the project. This is the project. And, you know, so a lot of it was word of mouth. A lot yeah. of it was explaining to them what they were doing and then just letting them go and do it yeah um so it was pretty interesting and especially like before you hired the the second project manager like what what were the common like challenges in terms of like obviously you learn things along the way and you're, you're adjusting and that projects are different but like what were some of the repeated maybe hiccups or miss like you know things that went wrong or like well the biggest thing that would go wrong for us is you know customer a would say okay your job i need you here tomorrow yeah. And you've got to be here tomorrow. Yeah. And I would go visit that job thinking, okay, we're going to move that construction crew there tomorrow. And I'd maybe not get there till three o'clock in the afternoon. Well, there's no way they're going to be ready for us. Yeah. So if we sent our crew there, they would be standing around waiting because the things that needed to be done before them weren't done. Yeah. So all of a sudden at three o'clock in the afternoon, I'm trying to figure out where to go with that crew because project A isn't ready. That was probably the biggest challenge in our business is ensuring that every crew was busy every day. Yeah. And because um, we would only work from about May 1st to mid-November. Mm -hmm. Earlier than May, there was still frost in the ground. The ground was wet. It was unstable, so we couldn't build. Start getting into November. It gets cold. It gets wet. So we had to get our stuff done in that period of time. And every day lost, <laughs> every day not worked was yeah. a day lost. Right. We weren't going to pick it up on the back end. It was lost. Yeah. So that need was more than a desire. That need to have every person working every single day and producing a billable event. Right was critical and the big and the and the biggest challenge yeah and then one of the things you mentioned that i definitely thought about i wanted to ask was the seasonality of it all so you have only a certain amount of time like how do you do that, deal with that in your business and also like how does that work off time versus on time in terms of like hiring people how are those logistics with the whole seasonality of of construction great crazy yeah that's what i imagine that's why i'm asking but, um so I'm curious so you know from the people standpoint yep. um most of the uh labor force, the, the crew, the people out of the construction crews, yeah. they were used to seasonal work. You know, they would work May through November and they were used to, they're going to be laid off December through April. Right. And that was something they were accustomed to. Uh, most of them did quite well in the seven months that they would work um, and certainly be able to support families with that. Off of that alone. Off of that wage alone. Yeah. Um, some people who did that on a regular basis, they would have winter jobs, plowing snow, plowing houses, yeah. um, 
other things, bartenders, you know, just all remodelers. Some people yeah. would go and they'd remodel duplexes or homes and flip them. So there is a whole myriad of different things. Some people just didn't do anything. They, they would go to the gym. Yeah. And just <laughs> stay prepared. just stay in shape. And, seriously, stay yeah, no. in shape and get prepared for the next season. So that yeah. was the construction people. Okay. They were used to it. Yeah. What was funny about that group is in spring, they'd always be coming around, when are we going to get to work? When are we going to start work? It's Why is it so wet? Can't we yeah. get going early? Because they just had a long winter of no income yeah, or very little they're income. They ready to roll. Yeah. So they are ready to roll. And every year, that same person who in spring was begging to start early would be coming around November 1st. Well, it's really getting cold out. You know, I really worked a lot of hours. When, when, when are you going to lay End me of off? Season, yeah. when you, so it was the same person who would bitch and moan yeah. and complain about right. not going early enough and then bitch and moan and complain yep. about not getting laid off early enough. Yeah. So there was just something that, that those guys dealt with and as a result, I needed to it's, deal it's with. It's funny you mention that because I remember the summer I did landscaping uh, in, in Milwaukee. I think it was between maybe sophomore and junior year of college or something like that. And same thing with the crews. Like, at the end of the day, like, they get paid per hour. But, you know, if it's a late day, we're, we're in hour 11, 12, 13. It's like, oh, we want to stop and stop. But then it's like, we're not getting hours in other times. You're like, sure. well, what do you want? Like, yeah. you, know, you want more hours? This job yeah. needs to be done. You just yeah. keep working. So I understand that because I have definitely experienced that myself firsthand. Like, how challenging that can be from the employee side of it. And then I guess from the employer, too, it's like, well... What do you expect? Like, you know, we're yeah. trying, we have certain jobs we have to do. So, on the management side of things, that that's interesting. Having been in the business for yeah. so long, in the in the eighties, um, so so having been in the business from the eighties through the two thousands, yeah, okay, yeah. early two thousands here, um, saw a big change on the management side of that seasonality. So it used to be we'd stop work, construction activity, stop building stuff, and. Um, There'd be really nothing for us to do. I can remember taking, I all through the 80s, yeah. I took the month of January off. Yeah. And I'd go back to Winona where all my buddies used oh, to live, out. where I worked oh, at the yeah. produce warehouse. Uh -huh. And I'd go live up there for the month of January, sometimes into February, because there was really nothing for me to do. Yeah. That changed. And in the 90s, it changed to, okay, yeah, we're not working 80 hours a week managing stuff, but we're working 40 hours a week, get, you know, making decisions on purchases, making decisions on what to repair. Um, you know, I had a fair number of people working at our shop in the winter, working at our asphalt production facility in the winter. And then, although it wasn't super busy selling, you would start selling for the next season. Yeah. Because essentially every spring you started off what are we going to do? You yeah, know, we, it's projects. Yeah, we need projects. We got to fill up that seven months. So you start pretty early looking for those opportunities and pricing work and bidding work, and so to the point that I'd say in the two thousands we're busy all the time. We'd work, you know, 60, 70, 80 hours in the summer, and we'd work forty, fifty. Sometimes it seemed like you should be working even more. <laughs> 60 in the winter because you sell enough to we're selling or we're managing or you know and as we became more sophisticated business owners and had more employees well then there was strategic planning then there was team building then there was buying and learning new bidding soft estimating software yeah. or new accounting systems so there's a lot to do yeah and with that so the, with that seasonality too 
I mean, did you bring on crews based on how much work you were going to have? Or was it like, we know we had the same five crews that we're going to bring on next year. We had to, like, we got to fill that up. Okay. So that's what we, the, we had our, yeah. our, you know, our crew structure and we had equipment and these are the people we have to keep busy all summer long. Yeah. And, you know, so in the, you know, so we had that growth in the nineties and then in 2000, um, 2002, we changed our name from Paving Mix and Construction Company to mm -hmm. Black Diamond Group. Yep. And at that point, we were even more sophisticated. We had a three-person management team. Deb was still running uh, the finance side of the business and was president. I was still in charge of all our operations, our production. We had a quality control department at that time testing our <laughs> materials. Um, I had, at that point in early 2000, three project managers reporting to me, probably in the neighborhood of 40 Jesus. 40 to 50 employees total. We had three salespeople. So we we knew what volume of business we needed to have in order to be profitable. Right. Not only to fulfill the needs of the people we had committed to employ each year. And typically those people came back year after year. Yeah, yeah you'd lay them off. They would technically not be your employee. But 95, if not more percent of those people would come back the following spring, right? You had, right. hopefully you had some that didn't come back or you told them <laughs> yeah, you, did, you didn't want them to come back the yeah. next year. But, you know, the majority of them. So you, you built that basis of what you needed. Yeah. So you were spending the time trying to find that work to crack that that cost. Yeah. And and the cost was the equipment and the facilities and the overhead people, all the sales staff, project managers, equipment repair people, quality control staff. So, you know, you kind of knew what you needed to get. Yeah. And that was always a challenge because you always started at or near zero. That's interesting. <laughs> you, you know, you'd have some projects that maybe went over a winner into the next year or some projects that maybe got awarded too late and didn't get done because the snow came early or the cold came early. So you would have some jobs to start in spring, but pretty much you were, starting for all intents and purposes, start at zero. So, yeah, that's that's a rough business model to be in. And, yeah. No it, reoccurring revenue. You know the term yeah, reoccurring oh, course, revenue? Of course. It's everything now, especially with software stuff. It creates software. a value of it for businesses. Reoccurring yeah. revenue. There is no reoccurring revenue in the construction industry, at yeah. least in, in the paving it, industry. Right. And with that, with the equipment we talked about, so is it, are you renting most of it? Do you have, do you own most of the equipment? Like, how does that work? In terms you of own equipment? most of it. So you do own um, most of it. Okay. You know, there's a fair, and, and that's changed over the years too. Back in the 90s, there were very few businesses that rented equipment. Some of the, um, um, the equipment retailers, you know, they would, they would be a Caterpillar representative or, uh, you know, different kinds of equipment. They, they would sometimes have equipment you could rent. But the specialty equipment, the, the pavers and the milling machines, and then once we got into the concrete, the curb machines, you had to own those because there was no no one that rented those, yeah. especially in the Milwaukee marketplace. You yeah. go to some bigger marketplaces and some of that equipment might be available for rent. But the stuff that back then was available and even now is more so is the small loaders, you know, everybody loves the skid steer loader. Sure. You, you could have none of them and oh, I need 10 tomorrow. I'm sure you could go on the marketplace find and find them. 10 to rent. Okay. Um, so that's changed over the years, but most of it we owned. And that feels and like very, very 
expensive. That's what I was getting at. Imagine. <laughs> so, yeah, so not only the challenges of finding work, finding employees, getting the right numbers for the work you were trying to sell, but finding cash, finding money to buy all that very, very, very expensive equipment. It's the challenges of the paving industry. Yeah, and as you're growing and making more, you know, more revenue, going from like you know, four or five, whatever million, it's like fourteen. So that revenue, it, obviously, you feel growth with more revenue because you get put more employees and everything too. Like, was that also obviously invested into new equipment or other equipment? But then, how do you how are you making those decisions on you know? A year-to-year basis of like yeah now is the time i'm just curious like intuition yeah i i, I mean i see yeah. keep coming back to oh. that but it truly was and and yeah i mean part of it would be sitting down and fall with our crew leaders and our equipment manager and our head mechanic and saying what's our stuff look like and the crew leaders at the end of the year they'd give a report on the equipment they use we always try to keep same equipment with the same crew that's usually a good idea yeah um you know they get used to that piece and then it's theirs maybe they take better care of it rather than the one that goes between everybody that nobody ever takes care of it's their equipment yeah ownership of it Yeah, yeah yeah um so you'd sit down and say what's good what's bad what can we repair? What can what will last us another year? Won't, what won't last us another year? Yeah. Or, geez, how much money do you think you have to put into repairing that? And we'd say, wow, man, that's a lot of money. Maybe we should just buy a new one. And then you'd get a price for a new one. And then you'd go to the bank and say, can I borrow more money? And it was, it was a lot. So, you know, again, as we grew, and we grew pretty fast, our sophistication grew not only in how we estimated jobs, but how we analyzed, and you know, so there were financial reports and spreadsheets, and you know, we were at the point that we had, you know, for our grading crews, there was a financial report for our for our paving crews, there was a financial report for right. the production facility. There, so we were analyzing all the different buckets, you know, breaking our company into different buckets, cost structures, um, revenue structures. We, we got to the point that we were analyzing different types of business. So we were in the public sector. Okay. So we bid infrastructure projects, both uh, Wisconsin DOT, as well as local municipality stuff. Everything from small highway projects to parking lots to you know, subdivision roadways. Um, we were into the business to business marketplace. So that's where the commission salespeople lived because they would go in and potentially sell that for a bigger number, right? It was all right. talking to the business owner about repaving his parking lot and yeah. talking him into doing business with you. We were in the general contractor marketplace um, and that sometimes you could sell for a little bit higher price there. Typically, you could build relationships with those general contractors. Um, and then we were in the developer marketplace. That mostly back in the early eight, nine, late nineties and early two thousands, it was single family subdivisions, and and multifamily housing, and working direct for the developer that was building that. Right. Again, usually more of a negotiated marketplace, but those guys lived and breathed beating the heck out <laughs> of the contractor pricing. So those were the markets we were in, and we would analyze each marketplace. And about not only the profitability of that marketplace, but the impact on our business. Um, I mentioned we had this production facility. Right. Well, typically the public sector projects were the ones that gave you the biggest volume. So those were important for volume, but those were usually at the lower margins. Yeah, lower margins. So volume, yeah. it was all about balancing that. Oh, and, you know, we became pretty sophisticated. 
when you say getting pretty sophisticated, it's just like knowing the numbers that generally you know happen from each type of project, and you know, okay, mm -hmm. that's in our analysis. Thing. Yeah, you know, it, not only tracking our costs, specific we call them buckets. Yeah, our, yeah. Buck, our buckets of business. Buckets. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so tracking the cost, different costs of our buckets of business, but yeah. also the revenue, right? And what the relative, you know, margins were in each of those buckets, yeah. and where we wanted to flex. Um, in 2002, we changed our name from Paving Mix and Construction Company Incorporated to right. Black Diamond Group. Right. And we changed it because we wanted to grow our business-to-business -business bucket. Yeah. And yeah. Justin Marketing <laughs> Guy, which yeah. which name would you rather market? Yeah, yeah, Black Paving Diamond. Mix and Construction Company Incorporated or maybe not? Probably not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, branding is important. <laughs> so we changed our name so we could have a brand, so we could market so a strong name, Black Diamond yeah. Group, because we wanted to grow vertically. We, and we did in 2005. We got into concrete paving and concrete site work construction. And you know we wanted to, we grow we grew our business into survey. Um, we changed the name of our asphalt production facility because not only were we making hot mix for ourselves, but we were selling hot mix to other paving contractors. Jeez. And that used to be part of the thing I did. That was one of the things I was in charge of was selling hot mix to other paving contractors. And you know you go on your crew and you give the crew a bunch of black diamond hats or it was prior to that paving mix. And the owner would come out and say, don't wear those. That's our competition. Yeah. So we rebranded our asphalt plan into Raymix as a an homage to my dad, Ray Teglia, yeah. in Paving Mix. Yep. We called it Raymix, R-A-M-I-X. <laughs> and so we could have Raymix hats and Raymix jackets and market to those guys right. with giveaways and just everything we did, a, a different branding, right? Yeah. And so, you know, we started doing all of that kind of different stuff and it was all about growing our business that had the best margin. Yeah, and how, like how much of your business was like the rain mix part of it versus like obviously doing all these different jobs and stuff? So like in the late um, 90s, about $14 million in business, um, at that time we were producing probably 200,000 tons of hot mix out of our plant. About 150 of that was going to our own crews and 50 was going to other paving contractors that we were selling to the outside. And we also would sell to municipalities who did their own repair work and that kind of stuff. Um, so about 25% of our asphalt production was to the outside. But if you take the cost of the material and the 150,000 tons that we were selling ourselves, that was a to, to ourselves. Seriously, yeah. That was a substantial amount of our revenue. Yeah. And it changed because oil went up and down crazy over the period of 25 years that I would say Dem and I owned and operated the company from 90 to 2015. Um, and so that ratio of revenue would change depending on the price of oil. As, as it would go way up, you know, Black Diamond or, or Raymix's revenue would go way up because the cost of the product went way up yeah. and therefore the sale price went way up. As that came way down, it the, that went down. So that was always an odd thing that we had to deal with too because maybe one year we did, you know, $5 worth of work and the next year we did 10 but we didn't do any more work. It's just the cost of our product it just went changed. up. just changed. Yeah. Yeah, went yeah. up. So 
And I know you also, uh, write something like, I think it was 2004 or roughly around that time. So you were growing and then you, I think you had a, a new facility or something or change facilities. Was that, that um, actually happened? We did. What happened there? You know, okay. and again, you know, realized we bought this brand new asphalt production facility in the 80s. Okay. Garnered all kinds of stupid debt. Had we known what we were doing, we probably would never would have done it. Yeah. yeah hindsight's <laughs> 2020. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, well, that wears out. Yeah. All, the, all this construction equipment wears out, including the production facilities. Yeah. So as we aged that equipment and also as we grew our business, because then like in the 2000s, probably in 2004 or so, we were producing 300,000 tons a year. Yeah. And 200,000 tons of that was internal and 100,000 tons was Jeez. external. Yeah. So what we had purchased way back in 1980 seven or eight whenever it was yeah was not only wore out but guess what it was too small yeah couldn't handle the capacity so that had to be grown and and you know rebuilt and revisited and there was changes in technologies recycling you know a plant that we bought back in the 80s you couldn't recycle with it so that plant was at a disadvantage to those people who could recycle and could lower their production costs their material costs so we had a meet higher volume needs, worn out equipment, you know, new technologies in recycling, new technologies in production, new technologies in quality control needs. It's a very, very expensive business to be in. Yeah. Very <sighs> capital intensive. Yeah. And because of its seasonality, come spring, yep. no invoicing for like Four or five months, right? We didn't sound any, send any invoices because we didn't do any work in December, January, February, March, or April. Right. So come May, we'd start to send out on invoices. Typically, 45, 60 days. We were paying for our material. So there was this huge lag time. So in spring, there would be this great need for cash for materials, for your labor workforce, for all these costs that were going up that hadn't yet been paid for. Right. So not only was it capital intensive for the equipment needed, but your working capital had, line line of working capital had to be this crazy amount. So until you started catching up, yeah. And challenging business. I was going to say cash yeah. side of things. Oh, for sure. It sounds like especially with, you know, with all the things you have to deal with cash wise and the seasonality as well. On top of that, it's like right. holy shit, man! Like how do you like, imagine that? Sounds like a lot of fun, Joe. That's why I look so old. <laughs> That is nuts. That That's is, why I look like, you know, yeah. I, I may look like I'm... You look yeah, young, Joe. You're sure, still, whatever. You're, you're still young. But that, like, how are you handling them with, like, I mean, I guess bank loans and everything else. It's just a matter of, like, we need it. Was it, like, an every year you knew you are going to need it, so you take a loan every year? Or, like, was that basically yeah. how it went? I mean, there? you know, I mean, we'd always have uh, capital expenditures for equipment, you yeah. know, and that was at a point where we started planning it and we maybe know six months or a year in advance, hey, this is what are going to be our needs are. Again, as we grew more sophisticated and yeah. became actual business owners um, rather than Happens shooting time. from the hip people. <laughs> um, you know, we, we would get capital money from not only our banking relationship, but there's other sources for equipment uh, uh, lending. Yeah. Manufacturers love to lend True. money for their equipment. That's one of the ways they sell and there's other financial institutions that are specific to that equipment loaning industry. But the working capital, that line of credit, was something that was always negotiated every year with our bank. And, you know, there would usually be a baseline just on our good looks. And then as you started doing business and your 
accounts receivable would grow, that line of credit could grow with it, as well. could grow with it. Yeah. and yeah. there'd be more money available. Yeah. But, you know, and I don't know, we'd have a sweep. Every week we'd pay bills, and on Monday morning, Deb would look, and this was before the bank would automatically sweep money in and out. Deb would look at it on Monday morning and say, okay, what did we deposit over the weekend? Yep. And what are the checks that are going to clear today? And how much money do I have in the account? Can I, do I have to sweep money from the line of credit in? Or yeah. can I sweep some cash back and pay down that line of credit for five days? Right. Yeah. And then at some point, it did it automatically. Yeah. And just handle it. But it would, the bank would just, you know, automatically it'd sweep money in and out. So you're always watching how much interest you paid. Yeah. Right? Man, well, well, yeah. Definitely a challenging challenging business model and I mean props to you for continuing for so many years it's just like yeah we had to figure it out we just keep going it seems like right I mean that's just what happens and did the growth like obviously a lot of growth from you said like the 90s and like moving forward then did the growth slow did it like you just kept growing like how did that go like in 2000s the 90s, and then you know in the 90s our growth was pretty much consistent every year yeah. so if we grew 10 millions in the 90s from 4 to 14 yeah it, you know, if you would spread that over that 10 years, it was incremental each year till we got to that point. Yeah. There were never any huge jumps. I mean, there may have been some bigger right. jumps. It wasn't all exactly consistent year after year. But then in early 2000, when we decided, okay, we want to we wanna get more into the business to business. Again, we, were more, we, we had more people. We had multiple project managers. We decided we wanted to expand our company and get into more services. 2005, we introduced concrete paving. Um, we did a strategic planning along with our name change. Yep. Wait, let, me, let me think about this for a second. I guess the strategic plan, when did I say we changed our name? 2002? 2002, I think you said. Okay. Yeah, 2002. So in two, early 2000, we did we did a strategic planning session. Okay. And it was Deb and I and our VP of Marketing and Sales, Dan, and I think like three or four of our other key people. They have a project manager, key salesperson, some of our key crew people. Yeah. And we decided that by 2010, we wanted to be doing... $25 million in business. Okay. And we wanted to be vertically integrated. We wanted to offer more than just grading and paving. And so we put a plan in place to make that happen. And we were probably doing, in so 14, we're probably doing about $16 million in 2002 when we changed our name. And by 2005, we were doing $25 million in business wow. revenue. Hit that early. So we hit it that hard in that three years to yeah. grow another $10 million in business. Right. And part of that was adding the concrete to us. That yeah. was probably a 4 or $5 million revenue yeah. increase in and of itself. But we continued to grow the rest of our business. Was that more or less difficult or challenging compared to the, the 10 million you grew before? I mean, if it's about the, about the same, I guess it's always challenging in business, but I'm just curious if that was like a, you had more leverage at that point in time, or it's like, oh, hey, we add this, we add this, that'll help us, or what do you, what, what you think? It's a really interesting question. I think our growth in 2000, in 2000, from that, you know, 15, 16 million to 25 was done with more purpose with, yeah. with more specific purpose and direction okay 
in the 90s, it kind of just happened. 90s, it sounds like, this is in my head, it sounds like 90s, do more shit. And 2000s, okay, this is the shit we're going to do. Like, it's a little, Seri- yeah. Seriously, okay, that's yeah. kind of what it was. It was in the 90s, like, oh, this is fun. Oh, well, hey, we're going to do more business. Okay, well, maybe we should buy more equipment. Well, we need to do more business. Yeah. And it just kind of happened. Yeah. There was no, there was no strategic plan. Yeah. But there I was think, no plan to grow each year. It just kind of happened. I, Whereas 2000, okay, here's our plan. Yep. We're going to hit 25 million by 2010. Mm-hmm. And we we hit it like, you know, we had Way a 10 year strategic planning period and we hit it in three years, four years, something like that. Five, yeah. You know, half the time. There is an important piece of that I have to stress is that, especially early on, like you just take action. Like you guys were taking action, you were doing things, you were trying things, and like in any business, and like what people get paralyzed with is like the taking action part. Like, oh, what's the perfect thing to do? It doesn't matter early on because if you don't do anything, nothing happens, right? So at it, least it was you took all action. shoot from the hip. Well, right, but you were doing things. That's the thing. Yeah. You were shooting from the hip, but you were shooting. That's yeah. the important oh, yeah. thing. You know, you weren't just like sitting back and like, oh, if this company, oh, we'll just keep running it. We'll do what we always do. No, you guys were doing things which is yeah. important i think yeah. to growth and then you're more strategic about it later on we were we were getting advice yeah we, you know we were getting team building advice we were getting yeah. sales strategy and marketing advice we yeah. were doing you know some f- making some thoughts about yeah. what's next right um what, where did that advice come from or like was it um all over we we early on had connected with this guy out of grand rapids michigan um so very early on my sister joined tech you know tech is called the executive committee it's that's what the name was years ago okay it's basically a ceo roundtable group mm-hmm. so there's a leader who is an employee of the of the organization yep. and then these business owners typically each group is similar sized companies but all in different industries right and the presidents or the ceos come and they all talk about their business and they kind of help each other strategize as well as you have typically this financial or marketing expert that is your kind of general mentor. So early on, we had joined that organization. And they're the ones who helped us get a little bit more sophisticated, understanding we needed financial reporting, splitting our company into buckets, analyzing costs, you know, of the different buckets. You know, they're the ones who kind of helped us through that. Okay. And at some point, um, part of that grew, and Deb belonged to this this organization, so she was the, our president who went to the CEO roundtable right. group. And at some point, she saw somebody speak, and this guy was a strategic planning, sales, and marketing expert. Guy out of Grand Rapids, David Mutchler. Big, tall, like six foot eight dude, played football in high school and college. Huge guy, smart as hell. Yeah. You know, and... She really, what he said in the presentation really spoke to her. And so we hired him to come in and speak to our team. And before you know it, he was coming a couple times a year and working with our sales staff, working with our project management staff, working with our crew leaders, you know, team building, goal planning, got into a goal planning process. And I would say that he was somebody who was very important to us and the success of our growth and the success of retaining employees and the success of, you know, that, I don't know what book it was about putting the right people in the right seat or whatever. Mm-hmm. If that's good, maybe that's good to great. It could be. Might um, be. Yeah. Sound, I, yeah. I think Might that is that. putting the right one, yeah. person in the right seat on right. the bus. Um, really was, I'd say, yeah, 
not critical, because critical is too strong of a yeah. word, but really strategic and an important part of our growth and our organization and, and really helping us figure out what to do next. And, and really what he helped us do is focus what we, I mean, like most of those guys, right? They come in and they help you figure out what you already know. Yeah. You just don't know how to articulate it or right. it helps draw it out of you. They don't certainly tell you what to do. Right. But they help you figure out what it is you want and then how to get there. When did you bring him on? Do you remember roughly when that was? I bet we started having him work for us probably in the 90s. Okay. and then Late you... 90s um, and then throughout 2000. Okay. Yeah, yeah really an important part. Probably 2010, 11, probably stopped using him quite as much. I mean, part of it was at that point, I think David had to be in his late 70s and he wasn't all an interest in doing as much anymore. <laughs> yeah. And I think over that period of time, maybe try, we tried a couple different people here and there and just didn't have the connection with them that we had had with David. And so I kind of how went often, to the side. I mean, how often, like in the year or whatever, was he coming in? How did you decide? Was it like as needed? Like, oh, we need some help with this? Or like, was it a, you know, throughout every, every two months you're coming There in? was a period of time he would come every fall. Oh, really? Okay. Again, so. that whole shutdown thing. Yeah. You know, try, try and get a group of, you know, Five, you know, three salespeople and two project managers to sit in the office in the middle of the summer ain't going to happen. Yeah. Too much going on. Phones ringing off the hook. You know, you got to be everywhere. I'm like, oh, what's going on over there? Yeah. But come the shutdown, everybody yeah. breathes. Time to plan. Which is interestingly, although the seasonality has a lot of challenges, it's also a unique thing. You stop production and yeah. you get an opportunity to sit back and say what went well yeah what didn't go well and and really think in a calm non-stress environment yeah what's next because there's not much else you can do anyways exactly yeah you have to you have to plan you have to you know, obviously you're still doing sales for the, the year coming right. up but you but you sit back and you do have some time to yeah. actually plan but, but the sales aren't as intense either yeah, not right I away mean, especially yeah um, so, so we had that opportunity. So there was a period of time he was coming every winter for a couple of times. You know, maybe we'd have a, a reboot on our strategic plan, a little examination. How's it going? You know, had the plan in place, do a little maintenance on it. Has our mission changed? Has our vision changed? You know, and, and then a little sales meeting, strategies, a little meeting with the project managers, team building, get the salespeople and the project managers together because typically there was a lot of tension between that group. Um, those salespeople <laughs> don't know what the hell they're doing. They don't know how to sell or bid that stuff. And those guys are screwing it up. They should have gone faster. I can't believe they yeah. did it that, you know, so there's always that to deal with. Um, so yeah, we, there was a period of time we'd have them every winter. Every winter, have them come in. Yeah, and I think that's helpful. And even thinking about the whole like goals planning and all that, and, you know, time to step back. Obviously, like it's with a new year for anyone. Like everyone has like New Year's goals or whatever it may be. And I just had my planning review session with my best friend. And we always go over our goals, which is helpful. Um, for I, personal and professional oh, yeah, goals, both. Yeah, yeah. We we review we reviewed the last year, and then we kind of had some planning for like the future. Yeah. And you know how we do things differently, and like. I'll share one thing is like the habits, more focus on like daily habits versus necessarily XYZ goal because the goal, the habits lead to the goals anyways. I don't think we've had as much of a focus on that in the past, but there's something this year definitely trying to focus more on. Like what are those daily actions and not worrying about like, yeah, you have big goals and results. Your long-term want. goals. Right, but what are, the, what are the actions that lead to it more so? Um, but one thing, one thing I want to mention too is like this whole time we haven't talked about 
the competition. And when we talk about the company, your company, like how did you either approach competition, look at competition? Was that even you know not really a focus of yours, or like how did you that side of things? I'm curious or stand out from the competition. And, well, certainly as we developed, especially in 2000, when we wanted to, you know, we had our big audacious grow, goal, which was pretty big to grow mm-hmm. from 14, 15 to 25. Yeah. Part of that strategy was examining your competition. I don't think you can have a marketing plan or a growth plan without really knowing your competition and, and where your opportunities were related to that. Um, having said that, um, you know, I look for them on, <laughs> on ways to do things better, ways to not do things, you yeah, know. Yeah. Um, certainly look at, you know, their approaches to pricing structures. I mean, contracting in southeast Wisconsin, whether it's paving or general contracting, is a very, very tough marketplace. Yeah. Part of that is this whole Midwestern, I'll say, attitude of, oh, if we don't get that job, there's not going to be one behind it, so we better get that one. And it's just the driving down of the prices because of that. And I experienced that for 35 years. No matter how much work there was, no matter how much business there was, there for 35 years, there's been this attitude, if I don't get that job, there's not going to be one behind it. So they would drive down right. that price and it would just make you crazy. <laughs> Everybody could just be 5% higher. It yeah. would be such a wonderful world. <laughs> yeah. Well, your margin you strength than every single time, oh right? <laughs> so tough, tough competition. In addition to just everybody being tough, we're in another interesting aspect of the marketplace, especially in the asphalt world, is there's one large, huge company and then a bunch of little ones. Yeah. So back in the 70s and maybe even the 80s, there were in the seven counties of southeast Wisconsin, you can think about what they are. You know, Ozaki, Washington, and South. So Ozaki, Washington, Waukesha, Milwaukee, Kenosha, Racine, and Malworth. Okay? Milwaukee. Yep. Um, there were about a dozen asphalt producer contractors. So people who produced hot mix yep. and installed it. Producer contractor. Right. Today, there's three. Oh. <laughs> so that'd be consolidated? And much or? of that consolidation was in the 80s and early 90s and much of it was one company buying all the others yeah so to the point that in 2015 when we shut our business there was us one asphalt plant production producer contractor there was another guy in milwaukee with two plants there was a guy in waukesha with one plant and then there was this other guy with like 40 plants throughout all of Wisconsin and Michigan and Illinois. Goodness. And vertically integrated aggregate sources, concrete, bridges, asphalt, huge companies. Here we were, $25 million, right? Big, yeah. Pretty big business back yeah. in 2005. They were probably doing multiple billions. And wow. That, that was our competition. Goodness. So talk about all the different aspects of that. We're having trouble, you know, getting money. They have plenty of cash. Yeah. We're, you know, we're having trouble getting our costs down because our aggregate supplier wants to charge us more. 
they're making their own aggregate. You know, so it's just it's an additional challenge. So you th talk about what did we think about our competition and how we deal with that. We try and go where our competition wasn't. So in early 2000, when our strategic plan, we identified doing more business to business work, the other producer contractors weren't looking at that marketplace. So we were competing with the non-producer contractors, same people we were selling hot mix to. Yep. And we thought we had something more to sell, plus we thought we had better salespeople, or at least we could train better salespeople, and you had an opportunity to sell at a higher price, right. rather than that public sector marketplace where this giant behemoth yeah. was saying, well, I'm gonna take that job. Yeah. And nothing we could do about it. If they wanted to bid a dollar, maybe our costs were a buck and a quarter. Yeah. What were we going to do Continue about it? Yeah. So we try not to think about them too much other than understanding where we best fit into that mixture. Yeah. I mean, that's what everything is in terms of, well, business or marketing, whatever. It's like, it's a product market fit in the terms of like, yeah, you look at competition, what they're doing, where are the gaps, you know, where do you, where do you have an advantage of or where do you, yeah, where can you stand out? And that seems like exactly. that's the only thing you, you can do, especially with yep. a big company yep. like that. You're not going to hit them head on. You're yeah. not going to outbid them oh in, my in God, the public sector. You know, like fools. That's crazy. Did you did you ever consider? I mean, you guys ever do any acquisitions yourselves, or like look at that, or was that ever on the um, table? We there were some discussions with okay. some of the other companies of our size. Some of them got somewhat serious. Um, a lot of personalities. They're all family businesses. Yeah, and people <laughs> a lot of egos involved in a family business sure and it just never happened never happened it just never yeah we had you know we had quite a few discussions over the years whether you know you buy us and we, or we combined or we buy you or and the egos always got in the way really of course never mind in devs it was always the other person's yeah. ego that got in the way <laughs> 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 man that's uh, you know that makes it tough egos, that's tricky egos are a tricky funny thing yeah right? I mean like you said especially with family businesses it just yeah. seems like yeah we've been doing this for how many years why are we going to join you or why you know yeah. all these different things with that yeah it's tough competition especially with the behemoth and then you guys and so to, you had that growth you know till 2005 then what happened then like that last 10 years before you end up closing like well, what happened there? Two, like, 2008. Obviously, recession. Yep. Recession. Um, you know, no development work. The the subdivision, the multifamily, the new building construction, that went away. Yeah. I mean, to the point of almost zero. Jeez. Um, the business-to-business -business marketplace, well, people went from, eh, I got a lot of money, I'm going to repave this parking lot, to... Yeah, maybe I'll throw, you know, $500 at it and fill a couple potholes because I sure don't have money to do anything more than that. Right. So um, the only work that was available was public sector. And at that time, the federal government came out with these, for some reason I can't remember the name of it, I was trying to remember the other day, but these um, advancing public sector projects with federal money. And it was yeah. all about saving companies. companies. Yeah. And so... You know, by that time that happened, we were doing very little Wisconsin DOT work because our purpose or our focus was to grow in the private sector, in the, in the site construction, right? right? Um, and at that point, there was none of that work available. So we started doing all this DOT work again. And because there was nothing else available, imagine what the prices were then. So 
This is how crazy it was. Yeah. So, you know, when you own a construction company, you got all this equipment, right? Well, that equipment costs money. Even if it's paid for, you're still have a cost because you got to buy the next piece, right? We weren't bidding any equipment costs into our projects. Like, yeah, can't afford to look forward, so we just got to look today. So, what were our yeah, what were our material costs? What were our labor costs? And could we make some of our overhead? No equipment. <laughs> and that's what it took to get jobs, just yeah, to keep going, right. just to turn some money and just to keep some people working. And we shrunk. Just like that. Obviously, recession. 25 million, 14 million. Yeah. <laughs> back, back to, to where back we were. Down to where you were. You know, by 2009, we, yeah, we were doing, in fact, I think in 2009, we might have even done like 12, 12 and a half million dollars in 2009. Okay. So crazy, got rid of a lot of people. I was going to say, yeah. You know, a lot. Not, not only in management staff, but equipment repair, you know, haulers, got rid of our QC department. We just, when we needed it, we contracted for that to the outside. Got rid of our, a lot of worker bees because there wasn't enough work. Right. Kept most of the equipment. Just kind of sat in the yard. You know, a lot Unless of it was paid do. for. Yeah, okay, we could sell it, but then, you know, so you're hesitant to get rid of that even though it could produce cash. Right. Because then if things start growing again, now you got to go buy a buy bunch it. of new stuff. And our right. equipment was pretty updated, you know, modern stuff. So we didn't have a lot of, we didn't have any junk to sell. Yeah. So then we, you know, so we shrunk. Yep. And then you figure out the right sizing. So how did you adjust from there? From the shrink, obviously you get to a point where you're at either bottom or whatever, and then you're trying to figure things out. Like, how did you approach that? What did you do? Um, a lot of hard conversations. You know, what business can we do? Yeah. A lot of it was unfortunately looking back. It's like, holy man, look at what we did this year. You know, we, we didn't keep, you know, we had two crews that hardly worked at all. Well, we just can't have those two crews. We, we have less than that. Keep the people we have busy. And there were less hours for those guys. I mean, we used to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And I was like, you're working 40 hours and that's it because we can't afford overtime. Yeah. You know, so, um, so it was a big change for everybody. So it was a lot of looking back. It's like, oh man, the last three months, we okay, we got to get rid of more people. Okay, now we got to lay off that project manager. It was a lot of um, tough decisions on the go. Yeah. And then... You know, as economy started picking up again, you know, do we want to grow to that 25? Now, now you have that conversation. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. It was really happening. But do we want to do that again? Yeah. You know, and what would the upside be of that? What would the downside be of that? So we kind of readjusted our business and reanalyzed it and kind of stayed at a lower volume. It wasn't it wasn't so exciting anymore when when you have that all excitement for this big strategic plan you make that goal and half the time you expected to make it and then the economy spits in your face and shuts you down <laughs> you're a little Putting it nicely. you're a little bruised <laughs> yeah, you're a little bruised Putting it nicely yeah that's you're a little happened. bruised so yeah you know we we kind of said this is a different thing let's be a little bit more cautious and of course the banks were you know let's face it they weren't loaning money too yeah. And I was like, oh, well, we, you know, you can't buy that paper. What do you mean you need a new paper? You, you can't have a new paper. <laughs> or at least we're not going to give you the money for it. You know, 
back in the 90s and early 2000s. Oh, well, how much money do you want? Yeah, we'll give it to you, no problem. You don't have any down, down payment? No, no worries, we'll give you all the cash you need. <laughs> so that changed too. Man, so obviously lots of changes. And how did that, you know, going through a recession, then going back to more of a, a lower number and not gonna push as hard for like the, you know, back up to higher revenue numbers. How did that lead, did that kind of lead to then the end of 2015 or like, how did that well, come about? Or like, you know, that, that's a great question. So in 2010, um, I was two years into a new relationship with my wonderful wife, Jennifer. Yep. Okay. And I was licking my wounds from all that struggling and, and you know, sadness related yeah. to shrinking of our business and laying off of people that you loved working with and right. all of that. And re-examining for myself what I wanted in my life and, and both personally and professionally. And so, um, you know, Deb and I, because we were such great business partners, had a lot of discussions about that as well. We're your brother and sister, so right. you have even more discussions than maybe <laughs> yeah. you would normally with your business partner. Um, we worked, uh, you know, worked at finding a way to get out. And... You know, you asked earlier about, geez, was there any acquisitions or any opportunities for, you know, and it just wasn't there. So one day she came to me and said that she was interested in buying the business from me. And her family situation was different. She didn't have any kids and she was single and she was excited about it and kind of actually kind of motivated by the whole idea. Yeah. So in 2010, we came to an agreement that I was going to sell her my shares of the business and I was going to go away. Yeah. I was going to go do something else. Didn't know what it was. Right. Something else. <laughs> something else. Okay. Um, so um, probably in October of that year, as we're working through our agreement, she came to me and said, you know what, Dan and I, Dan was our VP of marketing and sales, and he was going to become the COO and run the company for her. They came, they came to me and said, we'd like you to stay on in a sales role. I said, wow, that's really an interesting suggestion. Yeah. Let's examine that. And it really, I think, serves as a statement to how highly functional we were as a group. Yeah. Not only us three, but everybody within the company. Because all the business advisors were saying, Joe sells you his shares, his got to go away. Yeah. He cannot move from being an owner, vice president of construction operations to a commission sales guy. That's just a bad idea. And... Um, for many reasons, right? You know, I'm going to be talking about what, you know, just it's a bad it's idea. Go away, yeah, yeah. right? Um, but we figured it out, and um, Deb and I uh, made our uh, agreement end of uh, January 2nd, 2011. I moved out of my office into a cubicle and became a commission salesperson. So you did give up the equity? The I company. gave up my equity, sold, your shares. Um, sold my shares, and became a salesperson. Okay. And that satisfied my desire to get out of ownership and the demands mm -hmm. and stress of ownership relative to making more of a concentration in my relationship with Jen. Right. Um, it also satisfied my stronger desire to just do something different. Yeah. And even though Switch it was it the same industry, I, I was kind of, I, honestly, I was done managing people. Yeah. It just, just what? Well, taxing, yeah. Burnt, burnt, burnt out is a bad phrase because that, that means you're a failure, right. I think. And that's just not the way it was, but I, it was time for a change for me. Yeah. Career, 
personal big changes. Yeah. And so I became this commission sales guy. And my marketplace was business to business. And for five years, 2011 to 2015, I had just a blast. Yeah. I, I was very good at it. As, as you know, Justin, I love talking to people. <laughs> you do, yeah. Um, You're good at it. I had a great advantage in that I had been a business owner, so I could identify and understand business owners and people who represented business owners, their needs, what would ring to them, true or not, help them analyze what they wanted to do based on their needs, okay? Um, and there were... We're here talking about Joe Teglio, so there was very little people who could tell me about the industry. Yeah, not only in the competition, but the design, the the strategies, the construction work. I was pretty well educated. Yeah, you know, I, years and years of experience. Years and yeah. years of experience. I was a speaker. I was an educator in our industry. I mean, I did it all. So I was greatly positioned to be successful in sales. Yeah. So I had a lot of fun doing that. Um, we really grew our private sector business and really shrunk our, our our public sector business. Again, even as the economy grew, it was still better in the business-to-business world than it was elsewhere. It's just the way it is. Yeah. Um, and so we were having a lot of fun. And early, I guess the winter between 14 and 15, Deb came to me and said, you know what? I'm done now. Done. My turn. <laughs> I'm done with this. Now. And I said, okay, so what does that look like? Well, do you want to do you want to buy the business? No way. I no. didn't. I mean, so we we decided, even though it wasn't really my business business, it was her decision. Right. But at that point I kind of entered back into being not only my partner's support person, but my yeah. sister's support person. And we worked through between her and I and, and Dan, who was involved in the plan of what was going to happen, closing down the business. And it was just a matter of, you know what, it, it was time. It was, again, fierce competition, high need for capital expenditures, you know, tough labor force even then. Think about what it'd be like now, um, you know, high expectations of the client base and quality needs. There's a lot of things that she just decided she didn't want to deal with anymore. Right. You know, risk versus return. You know, you own a business, it's always about risk versus return ratio. Right? Yeah. And over the years, you know what? When we were in our 20s and 30s and even 40s, oh, you want me to sign another personal guarantee? Sure. Oh, you want me to sign five of them? Great. (laughs) Knock yourself out. As you get in your late 50s or early 60s, that desire for risk lessens sometimes. You know, and I know there's a lot of people that love it and are just as jazzed about risk and starting a business. Of course, I'm starting one. Yeah, we'll get to that very shortly. (laughs) Um, But Deb was done and I had no interest in doing it on that kind of scale with employees and, you know, everything that having to do with it. So we... We got it done, shut it down, and she retired and couldn't be happier. And, yeah. You know, I had 2016, the summer of Joe, first time <laughs> in my entire adult life that I did not work in a summer. Goodness. It's the greatest summer of my life. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. That reminds me of uh, sports because for me, I played football and sports since fourth grade. 
And I remember, like, same exact thing. That summer, like, the end of summer, like, of after I'd been done playing football, and then, like, you know, every summer you start early because football starts early. So you have two days. It starts two weeks before school, whatever. I remember how weird that felt when I was around that time and I saw other people in two days. I was like, I've had this every year since I was in fourth grade. Okay. So take that from 22 years old mm -hmm. until, well, three years ago, 57. Yeah. So 35 years. 35 years of working six days a week yeah. for most of that time. Yeah. Certainly in the summer. In the winter, we'd work five. But right, right, right. So seven months out of the year, you know, 60 to 80 hours a week for a huge period of that for my, my life. Yeah. Not the last five because I was in sales, but there's certain pressures in that too, sure. right? Um, you know, you still feel an obligation to get work and make a profit and make sure those guys are working on the crew and make sure you're bidding it at the right price. And, you know, but most of that time as an owner, all of that time as an owner for Deb, the stress of that and being done. Yeah, done. No more of that. Way after Nobody's show. coming to me and saying, well, when are we going to go back to work? Are you getting any work? Are we going to be busy this year? Oh, I'm too busy. I want to go home. You know, none of that. Nobody looking at you to feed their family and, you know, right. make it happen for them. And yeah. None of it. No clients calling you. Crazy. No customer calling you say, where are your guys? When are they going to be here? I'm ready for it. Nothing. So knowing that, <laughs> obviously we had the summer of Joe. Yeah. Um, how, I guess I'm curious about the timeline and what, and also like how you were thinking at that time about like, what's next? Yeah. Because clearly they're, you know, Still alive and well, things are going, you know, what's next? How did you even approach that? Right. So to reflect back in 2010, when I was going to sell my equity to Deb and move on to a different business, having no idea what I was going to do with my life, I retained a career counselor, um, helping examine strengths, weaknesses, uh, things I enjoyed, th you know, that, right. that whole examination of self, professional self, right? Yeah. Um, and when we decided, no, in fact, I was going to stay in a sales role, she and I ended our relationship. So in 2016, um, you know, business is closed. End of January, we sell our equipment. Yep. January 25th, I think, was a Saturday. Ooh. Sold all our equipment. That was Joe's last day of work. In fact, that Sunday, Joe and Jen got in a plane and went to the Bahamas. <laughs> That's the way to do it. That's the way to start it. That's the way to start the summer of Joe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, God, that's awesome. Yeah, you got to have awesome. fun, Justin. You do. You know, <laughs> Everything undoubtedly you do, you do along fun. the way. Yep. Um, so I re-engaged with, with Jane. Um, Jane Schrader. Awesome career counselor. Really has helped me examine what's next, what I want. So part of that was, okay, how do I, not only what do I want, but how, how do I find it? Realize I had never interviewed for a job in my life. I had never written a resume. I I had always worked for myself, you know? So, hey, what's yeah, next? So how do I find how a do I job? Do this? <laughs> and I wanted to. I mean, I was 57 years old. Yep. I, I'm not going to stop working. Yeah. Um, and and I, I wanted to and needed to. Um, so she helped me figure it all out. And not only identifying what I wanted, and this was more of not an industry or a specific position, but a description of what opportunity I was entering. Right. 
which I'll tell you about, but also how to go about finding it, the best way for Joe Teglia to find it. So to start with that, the best way to find it was networking. Yeah. I, I wasn't going to, yeah, I, she helped me put a resume together, but I wasn't going to find a job by sending my resume in and applying for open positions. Right. That probably would have not worked for many reasons yeah. for a 57-year-old guy. Um, so we decided networking was going to be the way to do it. Meeting with people. People I know, people I didn't know, friends of friends of friends, and just having a conversation about who I was, what was my experience, what were my strengths, what did I bring forward, and what opportunity I was looking for. And what I ended up describing to all those people and for myself is I wanted an opportunity in either an operational or sales operational or business development type position with a company that either had uh, strong growth desires that they needed somebody strong in those positions right or problems with what they had that needed to be fixed so operationally it would be somebody who was ready to grow their company and they needed somebody to grow their operations team or somebody operationally who just didn't know what the heck they were doing or maybe that the entrepreneur had no idea what it was to manage getting things done and needed somebody to do that for them or same thing in business development somebody wanted to grow their business or maybe grow into a marketplace or a geography or who they had just wasn't wasn't shaking it up for them (laughs) and they needed somebody to get in and have a conversation with people right so that's what i described and i started meeting with all kinds of really interesting people and the first opportunity that came with that work and it was a lot of work it was a lot of fun but it was a lot of work as we talked yesterday i love talking to people and that's what it was it was having conversations um was a company in milwaukee that um, was a manufacturer's rep for products related to green roofs. Green roofs. Okay. Very so, niche. <laughs> very niche. And really interesting because it was all about, you know, uh, greening up the infrastructure, less impact on stormwater. And, and this, this wasn't just putting some plants up on a roof to soak up water. This was putting storage facilities. This was putting lifestyle centers, right? I mean, you, you, these apartment buildings nowadays, right? They got a roof and there's a play area. Of course. And barbecue pits and all the stuff that you guys love oh, at your love. age. Yeah, right? <laughs> right? And all of that comes with not only the fun part of it, but there's all this infrastructure related to that that's all about keeping stormwater from impacting downstream. Yeah. And that's a big need in uh, urban environments to lessen the impact of stormwater. And so I had gotten connected to with this guy, entrepreneur, five-person company, really growing. This guy was great at business development, great at people getting architects to specify the products that he sold. Um, but he was horrible operationally. Yeah. Just didn't, you know, about getting ordering, getting stuff delivered. He just... You know, working <laughs> with the contractors, he just didn't get yeah, it. Not his thing, yeah. Not his thing. Fine, right? He was able to identify that through uh, mentors that he had, and one of his mentored connect, mentors connected us. And I was super excited about that opportunity. Um, he was super excited, gave me an offer, 
as we worked through that offer, um, whether I came to on, on too strong, at one point he called me one day and said, you know what, we're, we're, and he had a partner, we're backing out. Well, why? He said, well, we're afraid you're going to come in and tell us how to run our company. And I said, well, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of what you need. I'm not going to tell you how to grow strategic, but I am going to tell you how to get things done. And yes, that is what I would do. And if that's not what you want, then so we separated. Yeah. And so that was the one opportunity I had to get out of the paving industry and it's something that I was really excited about. Cool, trendy, right? Growing, holy man, yeah. growth potential, ridiculous. You can't build a building in downtown, in, in the city of Chicago proper without having some kind of stormwater retention system on your roof. So really cool, but it just didn't happen. Okay. So that was one opportunity. That was my one and only opportunity yep. to get out. And then... Both prior to that and after that, I was talking to this guy, Mike, who had a consulting business. And I, Mike and I have known each other for 30-some years. He and his family used to be in the paving business in the Milwaukee area. And, you know, so we had known each yeah. other. And he had this small consulting business, national clients. Um, and he, he and I had talked early on. And he wanted me to come on board as a project manager, just managing projects around the country. And I had absolutely no interest in that. That was, yeah. number one, I didn't want to be just a project manager. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but I For wanted to be in more of an, a, you know, a management or a, a key shaker role, right? Um, business development would have been that description, right? Really yeah. hitting it and making things happen. Um, so I don't want that, and, and he needed somebody operationally because he's as his own mission sucks at it, <laughs> but and doesn't like it. Yeah. But he didn't want to put money back in the business. I'm just gonna let the business more grow more organically, and that was fine. So as he and I would meet every couple months just for coffee and conversation, what's going on? It got to the point where he said, you know, my wife and I have been talking about it. And, you're our guy we got to have you here and let's grow the business and so I came on board as director of client services what did that mean well yeah, first what of all, does that mean? <laughs> I, wa I wanted a title and and you know talk about somebody who's a, a great entrepreneur but I had to write my own job description I'm the one who insisted on the title yes. a title and figured out what it was and came up with it Mike's just doesn't get all that, right? Or doesn't want to. And that's yeah. fine. Again, right. that's fine. Everyone's different, exactly. That's what he was hiring me for, right? That's right. that's the stuff I'm very good at and see the benefit for. So what did I do for him? I handled all the operational aspects of that consulting business. And what his business marketplace was uh, national accounts with multiple uh, building facilities around the United States with big parking lots. Yeah. Central decision making. So one main facility guys, he, he could market and sell to one to guy one person, yep. who then said, okay, go out and take care of all my properties and the pavements associated with them. So we did evaluation of condition, budgeting, when they were ready to spend money, plan and specification development, um, finding contractors, bidding services, and then once the contract got awarded, then we would manage the on-site construction. We'd have somebody there watching yeah. you know, for inspection and then project management. 
And I was in charge of everything after he sold the business. So he would do a lot of the evaluations, but I was doing them as well. But when it came to to design, finding and selecting contractors, bidding services, awarding, project management, that was all me. All you, yep. So it worked out real well because I was having a good time with that stuff. It was interesting for me to be on what I call the other side of the table. (laughs) You know, when you're a contractor, there's three sides of the table. There's the owner, there's the engineer consultant, and then there's the contractor. So I got to sit on the other side of the table for a while, and that was kind of interesting. And I believe I had a really advantage there, a real advantage there, because I had 35 years of contractor-based experience. Right. And most of the people in the engineering consulting world don't have that. They have design experience. Mm-hmm. Some of it's real world, nothing wrong with that. Some of it's all book, problems with that. They're good people. I had a far different experience, perspective, knowledge base than those people did. So I think I had a lot to offer to that business. Challenge was um, he couldn't grow the business. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and whether that was the marketplace had changed for him and he wasn't aware of it, whatever it was, he couldn't grow the business. Yeah. So two years later, we kind of looked at each other and said, Mike, you can't afford me. And he said, yeah, I know, but I don't want you to leave. And I said, well, what am I going to do here? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Not much you can. No, right. I don't want to, again, I don't want to go into just project management and be the operations guy in the winter. I, just no interest. So yeah. we parted ways. Okay. So that was so that was early August. <laughs> yep. So okay, now what? And I, I met with Jane a couple times again, reengaged my friend and, yep. and mentor, you know, business co- yep. uh, uh, career coach career, Jane. Yep. And uh, what's Joe going to do now? And so we talked about you know, do I redescribe? Well, my description was the same. Yeah, I still wanted that opportunity to. Ha- I wanted to have an impact. Yeah, you know what? I could have gone anywhere and gotten a job. Yeah. That experience manager. that, yeah. yeah I'd be a great project course, manager. You could have gotten it. Yeah. I don't want just a job. Yeah. That isn't what's going to trip my trigger. Yeah, yeah. And so do I want to go through that again? And I started networking a little bit here and there. And in 2016, I had incorporated site advice. And I did that because there was a little bit of a voice even back then saying, yeah, Joe, you should do your own thing. And of course, a lot of people said, oh, you should do your own thing. Yeah, great, easy for you to say, why don't you go do your own yeah, thing, yeah. you know? Right, exactly. <laughs> you know? How about I find a job? Yeah, it's difficult. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I did it back in 16, because maybe because of a little voice, but also I did some work for some past clients in 16 as a, as a consultant. Um, and I, for some reason, had kept paying my yearly dues to the state of Wisconsin to keep that corporation going. Yep. So August of this year, I said, okay, now what am I going to do? You know what? I probably can't work for anybody else. Maybe that's a challenge. In fact, somebody had told me that back in 16. What are you going to do? Come in and tell me how to run my company? Well, he didn't see it. (laughs) Why he needed me to do that. Maybe that was just a little bit ego on my part or foolishness. I don't know. Obviously, I had come in a little bit too strong with him. Um, so I started leaning more towards just getting this going. And I promised myself that between August, September, and October, I mean, everybody I talked to said, so what are your plans? I said, by the end of October, I'm going to make a decision. Why by the end of October? I said, because I have a deadline. And October 17th, I turned 60 years old. 
And I think when I'm 60, I should have the maturity to make an intelligent decision. <laughs> 60 years of decision-making and other things. That was my thought process. <laughs> so at the end of October, I had committed to getting site advice going. Okay. And um, took the month of November to really identify what I wanted to do, who I wanted to be, was the name right, um, developed a website, or my friend helped me develop a website and a logo and you know a, a real idea of what it is I wanted to provide. I mean, you've gone to my website. Yep. You've probably read it twice, if not more now. I've seen it. <laughs> and um, I really think it is, it voices what it is I want to bring forward. Yeah. And what I want to bring forward is client-focused site management. That's my tagline. Yep. Client-focused right? site management. Yep. And so what I want to do is be able to help people identify what it is they need done, whether it be new pavement, rebuilding old pavement, project management of a development or infrastructure project, what it is they want out of that. What's their property investment strategy? What's their strategy with this project as they describe it? Not, oh, I want a new driveway. What does that mean what, to you? Yeah. What does that mean to you, Mr. Property Owner? Do you want a new driveway that looks pretty for six months? Do you want a new driveway that you're going to hand over to your children's grandchildren? And, and help them ask the right questions to identify their property investment strategy or their strategy and what they want out of this project. You know, for a developer, it could be, uh, I want it done by October 1st, and I don't want to spend any extra money out of my contingencies, and I don't want to ever talk to a contractor because I don't like them, and I don't want the municipality yelling at me. Okay, if that's your strategy, right. now I know what to do. Now I'll manage the project related to those yep. items or related to that desire. You know, you describe what is your success, and I'll get it yeah. through there. And I'll get it through my 35 years of contractor-based experience. I learned a lot in two years as a consultant, and I'm that sitting on that side of the table. And because most of my life, my day job was project management, and project managing everything from, you know, back in the day, residential driveways to multi-million dollar complex DOT jobs on very busy highways, right. I have a pretty large breadth of knowledge and experience to give somebody a successful project as they describe it. Yeah, and right now, I'm with that, obviously, so this will probably go live early 2019 and 2018 here. I'm curious, like, what are your, who are your ideal clients or your ideal projects you want to work on and help with? Someone's like, oh yeah, that project, that would be the one I want to work on. I'm just curious if you have an idea of what that is. Obviously, early on in business, you're more open, potentially, into other stuff, right? Who, who wants to give me money? Right, right, of course. Of <laughs> right? course, everyone, especially early on. Yeah. You, need, you just need clients and everything. But like, yeah. how do you see that going in terms of, like, yeah, what your ideal kind of situation would be and where your skill sets match up well? I mean, a lot well, of things because you have so much experience, uh, but I'm curious. Uh, uh, good questions. And um, I'll describe a few different client bases that I'm definitely going to pursue. Yeah. One would be um, uh, commercial, industrial, multifamily property owners or property managers who have the responsibility related to maintaining their property. Yeah. Existing infrastructure, building, parking lot, sidewalks, curbs, drainage, the whole thing. And, and helping them um, proactively and intelligently manage that pavement. That means maintenance in, in the right way, 
repairs, uh, capital expenditures that meet their property investment strategy. Again, you know, if they call in a contractor and they tell four contractors we want to repair that parking lot, they're going to get four different proposals. One person's going to paint it black, one person's going to want to rip it all out and start over. Neither one of those, or one or the other, may be right for that client, but they need somebody to step back and say, describe to me what you want to do with this parking lot and this property and this building. And that's going to be different for different people. So helping somebody who has the responsibility, whether through ownership or management of an existing facility, helping them make the right decisions and moving forward with repairs. That would be one client base. Okay. And, and that's something I would really enjoy. Um, I think, you know, what's interesting about the paving industry, it's really clear to see the end result and, and what your success is. Yeah. You know, I used to be used to <laughs> laugh because once we sold a project as a contractor, those people wanted you to succeed because success was that the paving was done. Yeah. So they were all about, holy shit, what do you need to be yeah, happy? Well, how, yeah. how can we get it done? You know, what do you need? What do you need? <laughs> they were calling you, right? Instead of you chasing <laughs> right. them. Right. And it was your, your, your description of success was real apparent as a project manager. Your description is, project's done. Wow, doesn't that really look great? That was your definition of success. Yeah. When you're somebody who doesn't know a damn thing about paving or pavements or infrastructure, you you don't know what success is. Right. So I, I enjoy that ability to ask the questions and help identify what success is. Because yeah, you've seen it so repeatedly over and over and over. And again. in many different ways. Yes. Yeah. From painting it black to fully changing it and improving it and yeah. tweaking the drainage. I mean, you know, from very little to taking it out and starting all over. Yeah. And all the way in between so I can help them figure out what's right for them, not only in an end result, but what's the right approach yeah, and to, to that, that get to that end result. To that point, I'm kind of curious. Like, So someone has a project potentially, like what are some of those questions they should be asking that like people don't think about? I'm curious like if you know, obviously you know, but like what are some of those questions that so, people should be? So what do I mean by property investment strategy? Seriously, it could be as simple as, are you selling this building a year from now? Or are you giving this building to your children's grandchildren? Yeah. I, I mean, it could be That's a, a, a kind of simple question like that. Um, you know, a, a school district could be, you know, what's your long-term plans for this building? Some school districts know that, you know what, this school is going to be closed in three to five years. We just kind of see it coming. Well, then, then do what's right for that strategy. Or we know we're going to have this huge referendum and we're going to be expanding this high school and this parking lot's going to be under roof. Yeah. Well, then <laughs> let's do as little as possible, right? Yes. So, so those are some of those kind of initial questions. Yeah. Um, some of the other things is how risk adverse are you? How long can you stand to have this pavement down? Shopping centers are a great example of that, Ooh. right? They want their parking lot closed Monday to Thursday, maybe, but it better not be closed Friday, Saturday, and Sunday when people are in their stores, right? Right. So they want to maybe be directed towards a project that can guarantee that, it, you know, not that it gets delayed because of unknowns or because of bad weather. Right. Um, so it's all of those kinds of questions. It's, it's, it could be simple. It could be very complex. Yeah. So, so that's one group that I would re be really excited to help. Right. Um, second group is developers. 
people who have a project to get done. And you know, what are their typical demands? They want it done on time. They want it done within budget. Yep. Dang. <laughs> Ding. Right, right, check, check. Okay. And because I do have 35 years of experience of building a wide variety of construction projects, I really think I, and not unique ability because there's a lot of good project managers out there, but you know, I've constructed in excess of $300 million of business over 35 years, and maybe that's even underselling it a little bit. Um, you know, some of it directly as a project manager, some of it overseeing other project managers and being the guy who mentors mentored them in how to be successful in project management. So I have a pretty good handle on what how to make them successful. And so helping those people run a successful project. And um, I think there's some opportunities there. You know, I mean, yeah, there's some uh, developers who go to the general contractor or construction management marketplace, but being an owner's rep, and not only helping them with the project during construction, but also at the beginning, helping them identify the right engineering firm or the right design partner. I think I can bring a lot of value to that. Um, I'm not a civil engineer. I've played one for years. <laughs> um, but again, because of that practical experience, I can bring in some ideas and some some vision and sight that I think can be uh, an asset to the civil engineering design. And I can also help them identify the right contractor for their project. Right. You know, different contractors have different abilities, different capabilities, different expertises. And helping them identify the right contractor will go a long way towards budget and also time frame. Because if we pick the wrong person and they can't get it done or it's not, you know, maybe it could be too big or too small, you know, for a particular contractor. So helping them identify the right contractor for the project, I think I can go a long way. And that comes from not only my knowledge of the contractor base in this area, but knowing to ask the right questions of those contractors. Right. One of the things that I was very successful with at Pavement Consulting the last two years is increasing their contractor database to the point that they had far more competition on their clients' projects and honestly drove the prices down and increased the quality because there was a lot of sites that, oh, we only have one bidder here. What do you, what do you mean? <laughs> well, we can only find one person interested in this project. This is six hundred thousand dollars worth of paving. I think you find someone else. <laughs> yeah, find, you know, and then right. all of a sudden I find five people who are qualified, interested, and the person that they had been using because they could only find one contractor to price it was you know high in the sky price wise. So I have great abilities in identifying and bringing in the right contractors. So that's what I can offer the developer right standpoint. And the third group I really want to have some discussions with is actually the contracting community. Now, Milwaukee's economy is in really great shape. There's a lot of really great project opportunities out there. But many of the smaller contractors and many of the contractors who are super busy right now don't have enough workforce to maybe knock off and handle or a, a particular job. Yeah, we can't go after that because maybe we don't have the expertise. Maybe we don't have enough people. So... Giving them an opportunity to go after something that they might avoid just because of their experience or workforce at the moment and letting them go after it and I'll manage it for them on a project basis or I'll teach their staff through that process how to manage it themselves. So bringing my contracting and project management 
men expertise in the contracting world and allowing them to grow their businesses. Right. I think that would be uh, really interesting and it would kind of go back to my roots as an operations manager and mentoring people yeah. and how to become successful in the contracting world. So those are the three areas and the three client bases. Which is the ideal one? Uh, you said it before, Justin. Honestly, let's face it. It's the one who wants to sign a contract <laughs> to start with me least, right now. To start with the least. Yeah. Um, but they, that would be a lot of fun. Um, something I had a lot of fun with in 2016 is I uh, developed a spec at RFP, phone contractors, and project managed a very large residential driveway in the mm-hmm. Milwaukee area. I mean, it was you know six figures. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Part of it was because it was for some friends. Part of it was because you got to be creative and it was their home and they were really excited about it being right and looking a certain way and you got to play with curves and looks. <laughs> it was about aesthetics and some colored concrete. You know, it it was a lot of fun. I I'd, I'd love to do more of that. I think that would be a lot of fun to maybe have two or three con- you know, clients a year in that residential marketplace that Wanted to do something nice and just wanted somebody to come in and help them and then manage it all the way through. Yeah. Um, I, I think that would be that could be fun. You For know, some reason, that seems less stressful and more <laughs> fun. Well, I think at this point, yeah, you want to do the ideal thing would be the least stressful. Like, obviously, you still get paid for it, but like, you know, whatever. You have, you have some options, let's, let's just say. Yeah. Something I'm, I'm thinking right now is like, so is this, obviously, because you have so much experience in Milwaukee and uh, Southeast, Southeast Wisconsin, like, there's so much there and you know specifically towards that area but also you have just experience in the industry which applies essentially anywhere that there's construction so is it like do you plan on mostly like wisconsin based southeast uh, southeast wisconsin based types of things or is it like you could expand because you could in theory offer this anywhere whether it be phone whether it be you know like skype calls whatever or even flying out to a place and doing a job and looking at surveying things like what do you where do you see that in terms of location with everything my initial focus is going to be southeast Wisconsin. Certainly, um, part of that is just because that's where people are that I know. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Um, so hopefully, it's easier to find yeah. opportunities when you when you, you know, I can call Justin and he'll say, "Oh God, Joe, great to hear from you. Come on in and let's chat. What are you up to?" Right. So that that's a little bit easier to move forward with opportunities and garnering uh, contracts. Right. Um, so um, I'm not real excited about travel. Yeah. Um, Certainly don't want to be gone from my home base here in Shorewood, right? Even fifteen weeks a year. Yeah. Um, but you know what? I'm not opposed to those opportunities should they come. It depends what and, it is. and and if through my efforts I I connect with somebody who says, well, we've got other properties and we'd love for you to bring your expertise there as well. Absolutely, I'm going to explore it. Yeah. I, I you know, but it's not something I'm going to actively pursue. Um, I don't want a whole bunch of national accounts. That is not what I'm about anymore. Yeah, I'm about home, my wife, my family. Yep, grandchildren maybe coming soon. Oh, Got to be yeah. around for those. Yep, those babies. <laughs> <laughs> no That's pressure right. on any of the kids who may yeah, be yeah. listening. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> exactly. That's a different, just a different focus, but it's something where um, obviously I think like you'll be able to find enough enough business in Milwaukee and Southeast Wisconsin, you would think, right? But I also think that depending on how intensive and what the type of project is, if someone just wants some help and advice on things, you could easily do phone calls and stuff because you have that experience, you know? Certainly. And maybe it could be as simple as 
anywhere. You're right. Yeah. Maybe it could be as simple as, you know what, send me the four contractor proposals you have yeah. and I'll review them and I'll list what the similarities, differences, things you should be concerned about, things you should have to further clarify. Help people just proposal review. Yeah. And I'd be happy to do that. Right. Um, you know, that's something typically you, you do after you've had a long relationship with somebody and right. say, hey, would you look at this for us? So yeah. I, I don't see that being, you know, a, a pursuit with out-of-town clients saying, I'd like to do your proposal review. Um, but, yeah, some of that is know. easy. Yeah. Um, you know, typically you like to be able to go out and kick the pavement and take a bite out of it, smell it, and look at it, and, you know, see what's going on with it. So. Right. Um, I'm not opposed, but it's not going to be my initial focus. Right. Yeah. And I, I, there's just, there's definitely a possibility, especially because, yeah, because of that experience, because of the variety of experience, uh, that as well, it just seems like there's, there's going to be plenty of opportunities. So it's exciting, Joe. Thank <laughs> things you, that Justin. Are happening, man. <laughs> I, love, I love anyone starting businesses or like, you know, thinking it's different when you've had more experience because you can really leverage that, especially like, yeah, in this industry, it seems like there's... It's happening all the time. So you know, I think what's about interesting. So it's obviously as we've spent whatever we spent two yeah, and a half hours, hours together yeah, yeah. talking about this, makes me reflect on at 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 this point in my life, I know what I don't want. Yeah. And before, I didn't know what I don't didn't want because I had no idea until I got there and said, "Wow, don't want that." <laughs> repeat that again right so you come at it with maybe a little bit more experience a little bit more knowledge and you know yeah. that you don't want and 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 you, you seek out maybe more of the fun opportunities and and certainly you know what i want somebody who's good to work with somebody yeah. you can sit down to have an honest conversation we always used to get irritated by the clients who you know it was kind of the parent uh child relationship you know about that between yeah. a client and provider parent right. child that's horrible. Yeah, you don't want that. It, it's equal. The partners but are related. It's got to be partners. It's <clears throat> got to be both successful, both partners, both happy or sad together. You know, um, the parent-child thing. You know, when you're growing your business and you're young, you work for anybody. It was really one of the, I say, one of the proudest moments we've ever had, and one of the most interesting things we ever have is saying, you know what, we're gonna fire those guys because we don't want to ever work for them again. <laughs> To have that ability and that yeah. strength and in purpose and 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 confidence to be able to do that, that's, that can yeah. be a lot of fun. It's helpful because <laughs> you know you're no fun to work for. I don't work for you anymore. Well, right, especially <laughs> at this point. Yeah, yeah you don't. Yeah. You don't have to. So yeah. why not? Yeah. And that kind of gets into one of my last questions. I'm just curious as to like what you think makes for a great career because you've been through you know the family business and starting that and to this point now where things maybe have changed, but. As people are thinking about their careers or starting businesses and all these different things, I, I'm just curious on your opinion on what you think makes for like a great career. That's a really good question. I'm going to get a little philosophical. Go for it, man. So, um, as you sit on your deathbed and you look back on your life, what can you look at and say you are proud of having been involved in? Proud of having brought forward? Proud of having provided? And, and that can be anything. It can be personal and professional. And, you know, when I was a business owner, a lot of it was easy to do. And, you know, I'm a father, too. I mean, Jen and I have five kids between us. So it's, yeah. it's easy to describe that part of it, right? Your kids are successful. They're happy. You know, right. all of these things, right? They have grand, maybe many grandbabies for you to play with. Eventually. Yeah. <laughs> no pressure. No, no pressure. <laughs> um, 
But looking back, you know, as I was a business owner, the thing that I was proud of, the thing that I would look back on my deathbed and say is I helped provide a way for people to be happy and make an income for their families. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that somebody who doesn't own a business can't have that same success. Whether it be I was a great coworker, whether it was I helped elevate our team, all those things that to me, you know, honesty, direct, you know, being able to have that functional conversation. You know, how many teams are dysfunctional where, well, I can't tell him that he's doing something wrong. Well, why not? <laughs> it isn't about, hey, I hate you, Justin. Right. It's about, hey, Justin, I noticed you're doing this, and this is my impression of it. I want to give you the heads up. Right. And you should be able to say, wow, thanks for doing that. Let's yeah. talk about that, and let's elevate. That whole thing about looking back and knowing that you elevated yourself and those that worked around you towards success, yeah, dude, whether that's as an entrepreneur or as, you know what, a shoveler on a paving crew, you know, they can elevate that team. You know, I used to tell our shovelers that all the time, you know, you can't believe it. Well, why am I important? Because most of the paving crews down there and you're over here and you notice something that's not right and you call everybody back and you say, let's fix this. And all of a sudden the quality of the job has gone from a C to a A. It Holy matters. shit, yeah. it matters, right? It doesn't matter what you do. It's about elevating yourself, elevating your team, elevating your coworkers, and just you know a functional, honest, well-defined. So in your deathbed, you're looking back, say, what kind of person I was certainly you know was I a good person did I elevate those around me was I a good father a good mother a good brother a good son all of those things things. but then what did I do to elevate the people that I worked around or with yeah or who worked for me or I worked for I think those are the things and if you can do that with your clients as well I mean it's that whole team effort right again not no parent-child relationship partnerships both in work and love and all about it yeah that's what I think would would be success description for Joe Teglia love it and his 35 years of experience (laughs) his wisdom and oh yeah whatever (laughs) (laughs) no I think it's important I think you have that perspective everyone has a different that's why I asked the question because everyone has a different view or different perspective. And they're different. They're in different places. They've had different businesses or different careers, and it's just fun to hear those insights and then think about how that applies to you. Uh, so, where can people contact you or reach out to you, especially if they're you know, trying to work with you and everything? Where should well, you go? That certainly the easiest way to contact Joe Teglia is to go to my website site-advice.com. Yep. Um, or look me up on LinkedIn, yep. Joe Taglia. I think I come up pretty pretty yep. quick. And I'll link these as well in the show notes. Okay. Yep. I don't know if you Google site advice if I'll come up yet. I, I think mean, you would. My, my website's only about a week and a half old, so I don't <laughs> know about its I think, search engine optimization at this point. I think site advice came up when I searched Joe Taglia. It might have been second page, though. Um, but I think it did. The up. website did? I know it comes up on LinkedIn. No, the I'm, website did, yeah. Oh, really? I first okay. searched Joe Taglia. Did don't you remember. click on it a thousand times? So um, it's well, I knew where it was. Right? <laughs> Set up your computers to <laughs> click on it yeah, exactly a thousand right. times right. a day. Uh, Google knows. They'll adjust. Don't worry. They're, they're smart. They built in for people like Joe who are like, yeah, just click on it a bunch of times. No, they know about that. Um, so great. that would be the quickest way. Okay. I mean, you know, look me up on LinkedIn. I've got my, my email on there and yep. my cell phone on there. Okay. So give me a call. Love, Perfect. To, love to have a conversation and see if I 
can provide you some quality client-focused site management services. Great. And I'm looking forward to seeing how everything progresses with that. And I, I assume you're going to crush it, Joe, but I, I hope it goes Thank well. Thank you, Justin. <laughs> thanks for coming on the show. All right. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. As always, the show notes are over at justgogrind.com slash podcast. And you can support the show over at patreon.com slash justgogrind. And please, please leave a rating review over on iTunes. It does help more people find the show. Hope you enjoy this episode. Have a great day.